The viral video showing a dying indigenous woman screaming while she is subjected to verbal abuse by staff at a Quebec hospital has reignited the debate over racism in the healthcare system. The recording, made by Joyce Eshaquan herself from her hospital bed, has led to the firing of two hospital staff members and has sparked a coroner's investigation. But there are many saying that this is a deeper problem than one woman's death. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. I talk with Nazila Betash, an internist and assistant professor of medicine at the Université de Montréal, who co-authored an op-ed on racism in the healthcare sector about what governments need to do to start addressing the problem. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. I'd love it if you could leave me a rating, a review. Tell your friends about this show. So Nazila, by now, many Canadians have seen the video or read the story of Joyce Eshaquan, an Atikamekw woman who died at Joliet Hospital. Uh, She recorded herself on her was essentially was her deathbed um, in pain and being faced with a barrage of, of racist comments from hospital staff as someone who teaches medicine as someone who is in the healthcare field what was your first reaction when you saw this video or heard this story I was both extremely sad and angry Um, the video uh, documents the reality that um, Indigenous people, Indigenous women uh, experience racism and violence at the hands of the healthcare system in Quebec and in the rest of Canada. I think it exposed very clearly the brutal racist and sexist violence that um, Indigenous people seeking healthcare uh, experience and are subjected to. Sadly, at the same time, I was also not surprised because those of us that work in healthcare are very aware of these realities on a daily basis. And what we witness is reminiscent of situations um, like the one that Joyce Shekwan experienced and that others uh, like her have experienced. Um, So this is unfortunately not an an isolated incident and it's a manifestation of systemic racism within healthcare. You talk about this being obviously not an isolated incident. What kind of abuse or what kind of discrimination do First Nations people in Canada face within the healthcare system? Yeah, so I mean, what we see and what has been documented in multiple commissions uh, and inquiries uh, where brave Indigenous people have come forward and and testified about their experience is a reality where Indigenous people are treated with a complete lack of respect, often with contempt uh, when they seek medical care. There is a reality of violence that's experienced within healthcare. We often think of healthcare as something as a place of benevolence, but um, in the context of the colonial reality in Canada, it is not uh, benevolent towards Indigenous people. Indigenous people are subjected to, uh, as we talk about in the op-ed, situations where they're um, 
treated with the assumption that they're intoxicated, as in the case of Brian Sinclair, who was literally ignored to death in Winnipeg in 2008 and spent 34 hours in a wheeling, in a wheelchair in the waiting room before being found dead uh, by hmm. the personnel of the emergency room. They are uh, treated as uh, people who are not deserving of care and empathy. Um, they are often denied pain medication because they're thought to be quote-unquote drug-seeking. In the case of pregnant women, they're often uh, counseled against carrying pregnancy because of the preconceived idea that they cannot uh, take care of their children uh, appropriately. There have been several cases, and this is well documented in Canada, forced sterilization of Indigenous women in various parts of the country. These are all examples of uh, what systemic racism looks like and how it affects their uh, daily reality. This is not to mention barriers for accessing dignified care. Um, in the case of Joyce Ishikwan, uh, we remember that she had to travel down several hundred kilometers in order to reach the Joliet Hospital and then uh, be subjected to the treatment she was subjected to. There are situations that are absolutely uh, horrendous uh, in terms of lack of access to dignified and and uh, quality health care within Indigenous communities. Um, mm. And this is compounded also by... Um, the colonial history of trauma and violence at the hands of healthcare. So it's also compounded by the history of, you know, massive TB evacuations from Inuit communities, of child disappearing um, situations, which have been well documented in the case of the Joliet Hospital, for example, uh, where a lot of families from the various Atikamek communities have seen their children uh, transferred to a hospital and never come back uh, without being told what happened to them. Often they're told the child has died, but they're never actually able to see the body. Um, this is the history of um, Indian hospitals and residential schools and all these situations where healthcare providers and the healthcare system has been at the forefront of uh, medical colonialism and violence. Why do you suppose it takes a, an incident like the death of Joyce Eshaquan and the fact that she documented her treatment in a Facebook Live to bring this up again? And it seems like there's, as you mentioned, there's been multiple cases and there's a historical context here. But why do we need another reminder of this to raise concern, raise the issue of whether we can address these problems? What is it about uh, this case that has brought it all back to the fore, do you think? We, we made the analogy in the piece of uh, people who know they're going to be subjected to violence, resorting to filming themselves as a way to seek some kind of protection or accountability because they know they won't get it in the system to uh, situations of people in various parts of the world, including Canada and the United States, uh, especially racialized communities, dealing with the police and filming themselves because they know, or other people filming the situations because they know um, things can escalate uh, quite quickly. So this is what people have uh, called our George Floyd event, insofar as, you know, it's, it's a brutal, horrendous, uh, situation of violence at the hands of the state uh, that I think highlights a reality that is very well known to Indigenous communities, but that might not be for a lot of uh, Quebecois and Canadians who are uh, seeing the abject reality that Indigenous people are, are dealing with uh, on a regular basis. So I think it's forced a kind of reckoning and uh, and uh, an action um, that we haven't necessarily seen before. Um, there was a, a huge uh, demonstration in Montreal last Saturday that was organized by uh, Indigenous women and uh, 
thousands, if not tens of thousands of people were in attendance. Um, this is a, a moment that I think is, is leading to a lot of uh, um, calls for action um, that will not, uh, you know, that will not stay silent and that will not take uh, superficial promises and and uh, and more inquiries, but that really require um, change um, and and ra- drastic and radical change. Now, in your op-ed, you mentioned uh, the VN Commission uh, releasing its final report almost a year ago. Uh, and it had 142 recommendations that applied to the healthcare sector. What was the VN Commission, and what did it recommend in relation to healthcare? So the VN Commission was a commission that was uh, put together as a result of, again, brave Indigenous women in Val d'Or that came forward and had spoken to situations of sexual abuse and violence at the hands of the police in the Val d'Or region. So it was a commission that was put together to Uh, investigate the relationships of Indigenous people in the province with the state. So with various aspects uh, from healthcare to so-called child protection services to the police to the legal system that uh, took place over over a year and uh, heard hundreds of testimonies. And the report was released actually exactly a year before um, Joseph Shaquan's death. The report puts forward 142 recommendations that are quite concrete and uh, demand also accountability mechanisms in order to be able to track change and in order to be able to make um, policymakers and um, people in various levels of government and institutions accountable to Indigenous communities. It's also not the only commission. As you know, there's been the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls that also submitted their report Mm -hmm. around the same time. And there was a Quebec uh, special report for Quebec, actually, that was put forward um, that focused a lot on the reality of Indigenous women and their families, especially with the child apprehension programs what's been called the 60s, 70s scoops, and eventually the millennial scoops, which is ongoing. There are more children, more Indigenous children in care right now than there are that there have ever been in residential schools. So this is these are recommendations that are known and have been, uh, you know, on basically tabled by the government for over a year. Has the Quebec government taken any action on the VN Commission? Have there been any implementation uh, timelines, anything along those lines? So they say they do. <laughs> they uh, very uh, hypocritically issued a, a, a statement uh, saying that 51 out of the 142 recommendations were somehow in some form of application or other, but that was actually challenged uh, just a couple of days ago. A number of people that were sort of uh, participants in the Vienna Commission um, wrote a piece, uh, wrote an op-ed challenging the government to sp- specify what uh, recommendations were actually put in place because in their experience, uh, and there's supposed to have been a, a mechanism of, a tracking mechanism, a mechanism of accountability put in place, which hasn't been put, place, put in place, um, that was supposed to follow to track these um, supposed implementations. Our reality are people who are uh, working in healthcare and uh, the reality of the Indigenous people that uh, have been vocal around these issues, including uh, people who are involved in various community organizations across the province, uh, is that they don't see any change. They don't see any of these recommendations put in place. As someone who is in the healthcare field and who teaches in the healthcare faculty, in the in the faculty of medicine, what do you feel needs to be done to address these issues, both for people currently working in, in hospitals and healthcare and for people who are coming up through medical school? 
So the way I see this is it, it's not really my role to answer that question. It's more the role of, uh, you know, I see our role as providers is sort of following the lead of Indigenous uh, people and communities that have been telling us for a really long time what they think should change. So it's a matter of, of listening to those calls and to act. If I was to give a few examples in terms of things that were demanded that I think are very uh, in very uh, urgently needed. Um, there has been a lot of talk around implementation of cultural safety programs, which uh, is something that has been put forward uh, both by the Vian Commission and by the National Inquiry on Missing, Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, which would essentially mean putting structures in place in order to counter the colonial framework that dominates healthcare, unfortunately. So that example that's often talked about is, um, you know, uh, countering language barriers, for example, and, uh, and creating mechanisms that are more accessible uh, to various uh, communities in terms of their cultural backgrounds. But we need to be very mindful and careful when we talk about this so that it's not something superficial. So, for example, to give you uh, an idea of, you know, if we, when we talk about language barriers, uh, people sometimes um, think that, that all that requires is, you know, finding interpreters and, and putting them somehow in, in the interface between the healthcare providers and communities. And so to give the example of the Kawashikamash community in, in the Nascapi Nation, they can't call 911. Uh, they have to call a neurosetisse, which is the local um, community health center in Quebec, mm -hmm. uh, and speak to a nurse that evaluates the situation and then decides whether it's appropriate to call 911, to call an ambulance for the situation. So this is a, a, a cultural language barrier, but it's also a barrier of accessibility of healthcare, uh, which needs to be addressed. Nascapi Nation is a nation where um, Quebec has been very active in terms of building dams as part of a hydro project. So clearly when the will is there, uh, there's possibility to create infrastructure. And so accessibility is something that I think is extremely important. In the case of Inuit women, the territory of Nunavik in Quebec is large, uh, is comprised of several villages that are hundreds of kilometers away with no roads uh, to the closest uh, large healthcare institution. And so this means for a lot of Inuit women having to travel down in order to be able to give birth to a city that's hundreds of kilometers away and that usually um, is done by plane. So that means they have to travel alone, they have to be separated from their families and their ch children. This is, and it's been highlighted by the uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women uh, report, is also something that exacerbates the risk of encountering violence. Um, we have an epidemic of Indigenous women and girls that have been disappeared or have been killed. Um, and this exacerbates these kinds of situations, not to mention, again, the background of the history of forced displacement uh, from Inuit communities. So I think when we talk about cultural safety, all these um, factors need to be taken into consideration. Uh, and we need to move beyond a simplistic lens that um, is often what the government will try to, to harp to, to harp on to, uh, which usually means, you know, putting a few interpreters here and there. And um, mm -hmm. those, those, are, or those are not, you know, sort of deep um, uh, structural changes that are required um, in order to make the, uh, the system truly accessible for Indigenous people. And I've been talking a lot about Indigenous people who are on um, reserve or in villages or territories, but Let's remember that most of the Indigenous community in Canada actually lives in urban centres. There's a huge Indigenous community in an urban centre like Montreal. And despite the fact that they're physically in the city, there are all kinds of barriers uh, preventing them from accessing dignified care. And so one of the things that has been put forward by various commissions is, for example, the creation of clinics, centres that are rooted in Indigenous culture, 
that have, for example, uh, in the context of the opioid crisis, uh, which we'll, we're living through, uh, healing spaces um, that are centered on indigenous culture and allows uh, healing from, you know, what a lot of people describe as residential school syndrome. So, I mean, I could go on, but these are just examples of things that are very, very tangible um, and I think are, are very urgently needed uh, right now in the system. Now, Quebec's Premier Francois Legault, he, he I know he spoke out against what happened to Joyce Echequan, but he stopped short of admitting to uh, systemic racism in uh, Quebec or Quebec's healthcare system. How important is that acknowledgement and how important is it to see not just acknowledgement, but actual uh, addressing some of at least the recommendations that have been previously made or addressing some of the concerns of the community? I, I don't really understand how he, on the one hand, recognizes there is discrimination against Indigenous people in Quebec, that that discrimination is based on the fact that they're Indigenous, and that it uh, crosses various strata of you know systems of the state, including healthcare, including the legal system, including the policing system, yet there is no systemic racism. Um, so that's very something that's very difficult to understand, and I think it's quite insulting, to be honest, to Indigenous communities, and particularly to the uh, family of Joseph Shekwan and the community of Manawan that have been uh, specifically asking him to recognize their uh, lived reality and the reality of violence uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, happening all across the province and uh, in which the state is, is directly responsible. So, you know, how important is it? I think it's important. I think it's more important that uh, the Legault government uh, puts you know, words into action. Um, as we know, there have been many apologies uh, that have been issued over the years, uh, but apologies are not enough. And the next step is to put action into place. And when I say action, again, let's remember that what's needed is not, you know, superficial, uh, you know, window dressing type of actions, but uh, actions that are rooted in the multiple um, recommendations that have been put forward uh, and with mechanism of accountability um, sort of attached to them. Uh, it's very important that we're able to track the actions that are put in place and that Indigenous people have a word uh, to say in, in reassessing uh, along the way and making sure that uh, whatever is implemented is actually you know, producing the change that it's intended to. Well, it is definitely an important story and, and very unfortunate it took a woman's death to bring some of these issues back into the public eye. Nazila, thanks for your time. Thank you. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama, the music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Nazila Betash. The op-ed she co-authored can be found at montrealgazette.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.